You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's take our Bibles and open together to the letter written to the Romans. We'll read together Romans 1, the verses 16 through 25. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. We'll be looking at what Scripture teaches on Revelation this afternoon. We'll do that in the context of question and answer 65a, and then Belgic Confession, Article 2. Suggest we read those together. First of all, question and answer 65, the first portion thereof. Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. And then in that context, we'll be looking at Belgian Confession, Article 2. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most beautiful book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many letters, leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20. All these things are sufficient to convict men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, as far as is necessary for us in this life, to his glory and our salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and guests, you'll all know that the Heidelberg Catechism is instruction in the Christian faith. 
And the key Lord's Day in the Catechism is Lord's Day 7. With its question and on who are saved, only those with a true faith. And then that question, what is true faith? A sure knowledge and firm confidence regarding God and His Word. And question 65 connects back to Lord's Day 7, question 21. It begins actually with, with question 20 or answer 20. Answer 20 says, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Now listen to question 65 again. Since then faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. That's answer 20 coming back. And the question is raised, where does this faith come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. That answer is actually already found in question and answer 21. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart. But in answer 21, it's an added thought. Here in Lord's Day 25, it becomes the key issue. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, the Catechism goes on to explain. He does so by means of the proclamation of the Gospel. That too is in answer 21. And then the new part in answer 65 is, that's what I would call the B section to answer 65. The Spirit strengthens our faith by the sacraments. Now, if you were totally new to the catechism and you were looking at Lord's Day 25 and you'd be reading that, then you would expect the catechism to continue on to discuss first the word and then the sacraments. But if you look on that question and answer 66 you'll find it's about the sacraments. Raises the question, has the catechism already dealt with the word? Yes. With the central focus of the word in question and answer 19. From where do you know this? And with the substance of the word in Lord's Days 8 on the Trinity through to 22. That's the whole Apostles' Creed. But one thing our catechism does not deal with is the form of the word. We would say the Bible. Now, given the historical background to our catechism, that's understandable. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in a context in which battles were being fought with Roman Catholics on the one hand and Lutherans on the other. And when it came to the doctrine on the Bible those three were not really at odds with each other. Yes, it's true that within Roman Catholic circles, there were differences of opinion on the role of the Bible in relation to faith. Some Romanists held to the sola scriptura principle. Scripture alone. Other Roman Catholics had as much appreciation for the tradition of the church. But that appreciation for the tradition of the church, as we tend to associate it with the Roman Catholic Church, did not become church doctrine until the 19th century. And the Reformed in Heidelberg evidently did not feel the need to pay so much attention to the doctrine of Scripture, what is the Bible. 
Interestingly, the Reformed in France and in the Netherlands did consider it important. Both the Gallican Confession of 1559 and the Belgic Confession of 1561 have extensive sections on this issue. I'm not sure why that might be. Maybe Roman Catholics in the French-speaking regions were more keen on the tradition of the church than in the Palatinate where they spoke German. Could also be that Anabaptist views on general and special revelation were a factor. And one can well imagine that John Calvin's attention for the doctrine of Scripture would have played a role. But whatever the historical case, in our time, it certainly is an issue. Especially within Reformed and Presbyterian circles, discussions about topics will end up considering the doctrines of revelation and scripture. Take, for example, the discussion on women in office, or the six days of creation. At bottom, they are discussions about hermeneutics. How does one read texts in the Bible? And in the broader scheme of things, of churches, it's also an issue. Today, Roman Catholics, and in general also Anglicans, have more books in their Bible than we do. Who's right? struck me recently in a discussion on new perspectives in Paul, it struck me that N.T. Wright's Bible is fatter than mine. And charismatics, this is the other end of the scale, charismatics claim a level of authority for direct revelations from God that we as Reformed people are kind of leery of. What are we to make of that? And then we can go broader yet, some religions with their roots in Christianity have other holy books as well. There's the Quran, there's the Mormon scriptures. Why do we as church not accept those? And so I think I can say that the Heidelberg Catechism does not deal with these issues to the degree that we as Reformed people today might like it to be. The Belgian Confession does. And that's why we'll pay special attention to the doctrines of revelation and scripture along the lines of the Belgian Confession. I've got three sermons on this. Maybe next times I can do the second one and then the third one. We do that, though, in the context of question and answer 65. Where does faith come from? Article 2 of the Belgian Confession uses slightly different terminology. It begins with, we know God by two means. We know God. Knowledge and faith are closely related. Lord's Day 7, faith is a true knowledge and a firm confidence. But knowledge, knowledge is more than just being aware and convinced of a fact. To know God is not just to realize and be convinced that God exists. To know has a very intimate side to it. Some Bible translations, Genesis 4 verse 1, is translated as Adam knew his wife Eve. The NIV here has Adam lay with his wife Eve. But that catches the the flavor of that Hebrew term, that biblical concept of knowledge. 
to know is not just an activity of the mind, it's an activity of the whole person. To know implies relationship. To know is not to know of someone. Yeah, I know who that is. But it means to know someone intimately. To know has the full breadth of meaning of words like to believe and to trust. And then we confess that scripture teaches us that we know God in that intimate way in two, by two means. We listen to God's word with this theme. Faith in God comes by means of a self-revelation. And we'll pay attention to the two matters outlined in article two. First of all, we'll look at general revelation and then we'll look at special revelation. Boys and girls, do you know what tracks and traces are? Tracks and traces. Tracks are things left behind by moving objects, especially animals. Picture for a moment in your mind some tracks on a muddy patch by a river. There are some prints there that almost look like a human hand, except they are much larger. And, and at the end of each, what you could call finger, there are some sharp indentations. And at the edge of the mud patch, there's some tall grass, some of which has been bent over and, and even broken. And, and you look at all this and you conclude, you've got a bit of knowledge of about animals and things. You say, okay, a bear has been on this little beach and has taken off through the grass. What kind of bear was it? What was the bear doing there? That's where the traces come into the picture. A closer inspection of the grass reveals some tufts of dark black fur. Would have been a black bear. And on the ground you find lies the corpse of a salmon ripped open. You think, okay, the bear has been fishing in the river, caught a salmon, taken it onto the bank, eaten the protein-rich eggs inside, and then taken off. It's amazing what you can tell by just studying tracks and traces. You didn't see the bear fish. And yet you can be pretty sure this is what happened. Tracks and traces tell a story which we can read. And there are tracks and traces of God in creation. God's involvement with creation can be read in all the things that are there. The very fact that creation exists, its immense size, and all the way, and the way everything is adjusted to everything else. The fact that creation continues to exist, that there's such a thing as history. Everything proclaims something of God's presence and what He is like. Now there's a scientific endeavor, it was originally Christian, but it's no longer necessarily Christian, but it's recognized something of this. We live in a time and context where there's a big debate within the scientific world on the matter of origins. The cosmological model known as the Big Bang Theory suggests nothing exploded and that this universe has existed for almost 14 billion years. First, the cosmos evolved, that stars and galaxies and planets, and then on planet Earth, life evolved, beginning with single-celled organisms. 
The creation model suggests that God made all things that exist in the space of six days, cosmos and life. One thing did not evolve into another. It was all there at the end of day six. And now we tend to think in terms of this dual approach. But there's a third school of scientists out there who work in the context of the theory of intelligent design. Those who advocate it claim that chance is insufficient to prove the universe about us. If a person takes a neutral stance and looks at all the things we can observe, such a person, they'll say, is forced to draw the conclusion someone must have designed all of this. To argue that this fine-tuned universe came from a big bang, they'll say, is to argue that if someone throws a box filled with Lego from the top of a skyscraper, by the time it hits the ground, the blocks would form a beautiful castle. Now, like I said, many advocates of intelligent design will not commit themselves to saying who or what such a designer might be. However, my point with with pointing out to this school of science is that these arguments are worth noting with, with in regard to that matter of tracks and traces. For they are proof that today even those not committed to Christianity at times see something of the tracks and traces of God that are observable in creation. Scripture too tells us those tracks of God are present in our world. We'll sing of it with Psalm 19. There's a sky out there that, that tells us of God. There's a testimonial that runs from day to day, from night to night. That's history. Might not be happening in words, and yet you can observe it throughout all creation. And there's another track or trace that could be mentioned too. It has to do with us, human beings. One difference between animals and people is that people have a conscience. We have morals and ethics. We have a sense of right and wrong. Now, while morals and ethics will differ from culture to culture, all human beings do have an inner sense for that right and wrong. And that too is a trace of God. For God distinguishes between right and wrong. And God made us human beings in his image. It's true, with the fall into sin, this image has been shattered and and become distorted. Moreover, we not only have a sense for what is right and wrong, we also have knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge in the sense of that close experience. That too is something the Bible tells us. Take, for example, Romans 2, verse 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that special revelation, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So tracks and traces of God 
everywhere. In creation. Within man. We read of that in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Allow me to paraphrase it somewhat to make extra clear what's being said. What people may know about God has been made known to man. God has left tracks and traces of himself in man's living environment. It's been like that since creation. Since this world was made, God's hand can be seen in all things. God's eternal power, his divinity, they are visible in everything that surrounds us. With their minds, men can observe these. Now that raises a question. If those tracks and traces of God are so clearly evident, both in creation about us and in our own existence, how come so few people actually acknowledge God? How come so few people actually know God? The answer to that question is found in verse 21 of Romans 1. Their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. People don't want to see it. In fact, of themselves, people are not even able to see it. That's a consequence of the totality of man's depravity following the fall into sin. Let me describe it this way. If I put a, a pail, a bucket over my head... I'll not be able to see anything, right? Boys and girls, if, if, if I put a bucket over my head, I don't see anything. Yeah, sure, if I look down, I could probably just see a little circle around my feet. Now, imagine that for a moment. I, I have this bucket over my head, and I say, this auditorium is empty, because I don't see any people. You'd think, that's nonsense. This auditorium is filled with people. And if I were to pull that bucket off my head, I'd be seeing you. The reason I'm not seeing people would not be because there's no people, but because my vision is blocked. And it's a bit like that when it comes to man observing tracks and traces of God in creation. Man's vision is blocked. Yes, there's a tiny bit that man does see, but it's blurred and it gets distorted. By nature, by their fallen nature, people have a distorted image of God. It may even bring people to the point that they deny that God is there. People don't know God. Not because God isn't out there to be known, but... Romans 1, because people don't want to know God. They're not able to come to know God. And yet, yet that's not true of all people. We know God by two means. That's what we confess as church. And note what it says. It doesn't say we are able to know God by two means. It's a fact. It's a conviction. It's a statement of faith. We know God by two means. Who are the we? 
Well, we are the believers. The we of Article 2 are the we of Article 1. We believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. We, that that's us here. We who believe, we do see it. We don't have a bucket over our heads. We can see it all and hear it all. Creation all about us is like a book filled with beautiful letters about God. And, and when you stand on the mountain peak and, and look out over the land, or you stand on the river bank and, and gaze at the flowing water, when you see the moving surf of the ocean or the endless horizons of the prairies, that's when you see how awesome God is. Our God is just awesome. And that's why this world is just awesome. When you experience how a fellow human being is, is willing to help you out, loves you and, and cares for you, then you taste something of the love and faithfulness of God himself. TLC, tender love and care. It's a trace of God. Creation all about us, how we as people relate to each other, it fills us with amazement. There's a neat poem in the Dutch language about this. The older folks among us may know it. It's called Het Schrijvertje by Guido Gezellen. It's a poem about a little water beetle as it shoots through the waters of a pond. And the poet is looking at the little beetle flitting about and it notices it looks as if the little beetle is, is writing something. And the poet starts wondering, what's the story about? It's about air and water? Is it about fish and birds? Is it about themselves? And the poem ends with the little beetle giving an answer. Allow me to make an attempt at translating it. And that writhing, squirming water thing, with its glistening callback coat, stood up straight and lifted a wing. It paused for a moment afloat. We write, it responded, as we flit about, what our master gave us to write. Long ago, when he made us, no doubt, just one lesson, perfectly right. We write, didn't you learn the lesson? Can you indeed read it not? We write, rewrite, and write again the holy name of God. And there's an English hymn that bears testimony to this as well. It's a hymn composed as a thunderstorm rolled in over a lake. And the author was reminded of Psalm 29. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. To general revelation. The observable tracks and traces of God in the existence and continuation of creation, in nature, in human beings, all the creatures as little letters in a book. And then there's special revelation. 
Where does this faith come from? How do we know God? So people are able to know God through creation. But they won't. They're blind to the glory that surrounds them. The light of nature, whatever that may be, is insufficient. And you know, many people don't like that theory of intelligent design, for it implies a maker. And a maker implies responsibility and accountability. A lot of people are like the Jews after the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews. I'm sure you know how it went. They posted Roman guards to make sure that a resurrection would not be faked by the disciples. The problem was the resurrection was real. And so the Roman guards, after it happened, come and report to the Jews. And then you think, well, Jews, here is the evidence. The very people you told to prevent it from happening are telling you it's happened. But the Jews, they refuse to believe. And that, brothers and sisters, that's hardness of heart. They give a big bag of money to the guards, and then they spread a false story. Anything, anything to not have to believe that Jesus has arisen from the dead. And that's what people by nature are like. Anything to not have to believe that there's a God out there who made all things and we're accountable to him. Now, we know that already, but there are people who do know God. They're the believers. That's we. That's us. But it will also be clear to you that we did not come to know God through general revelation. No, people can only come to know God through a personal encounter with God. And that personal encounter, that's what we call special revelation. Special because it's focused on the receiver. Think again of the tracks in the mud bank by the river. The tuft of hair in the tall grass, the ripped open salmon. It all points in a certain direction. But in a court of law, such evidence is generally considered circumstantial. It's insufficient to prove something. You'll need to run a DNA test on the follicles of the fur piece, or better yet... You need to follow the tracks until you encounter the bear still licking its chops. It's in the encounter that there's proof. When it comes to the encounter with God, there's still a difference with what I've just described. You know, we go tracking the bear, but by nature, people do not go tracking for God. And they may look for something. But without God drawing us in, And letting us see him, we'll never find him. In fact, it would be wrong to say that we go looking for God. It is God who goes looking for us. In the marketplace of Lystra, the missionary Paul said, We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
That's God using Paul to bring the residents of Lystra to an encounter with God. And it happens. We read in Acts, people in Lystra come to faith and a Christian congregation is formed in that city. Getting to know God through a personal encounter. God looking you up and meeting you. We can think of personal appearances of God to people such as Noah, Job, Abraham, Moses. We can think of the prophets who received the words of God to pass them on to the people of God, to the king of God's people, or even to foreign nations. Think of Jonah. And at times the personal encounter with God is accompanied by miracles. The birth of Isaac in the tents of the hundred-year-old Abram. The ten plagues. The exodus, manna and quails in the desert, the fall of Jericho, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, the miracles performed by the Lord Jesus. Those are no tracks and traces of God. That's God himself present at work. That's what we know as God's special revelation. Special because it's focused on the receiver. It's intended for a particular audience. This is the means the Holy Spirit uses to work faith in the hearts of those whom God has chosen to eternal life. And the climax of that special revelation is in the sending of God the Son. It's also the proof that no man can come to know God by his own power. For as the Christ hung there on the cross, there was no one who understood what was happening. Bits and pieces, yes. Even a Gentile soldier just stands in amazement and says, well, this was a son of God. Seems as if the murderer on the cross next to Jesus understood it best. And so Jesus also spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing to his followers to explain it all. You need a personal encounter with God to make sense of the world. Do we today have such personal encounters with God? Yes. In fact, do you realize we are meeting God right at this moment? That's how I began the worship service. Please rise as we meet the Lord. The preaching of the gospel, that is us encountering God. A worship service is the meeting of God with his covenant people, comparable to Israel, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, listening to the law being proclaimed. You can read of that in Hebrews 12. And that personal encounter is also very present in the celebration of the sacraments. With baptism, God places his name on our heads. And it's very special because the person being baptized, his name is mentioned. With the Lord's Supper, it is God himself who is the host at the meal. So special revelation, the encounter with God. Today it comes to us especially through the Bible. It is the word of God that reveals to us who God is more fully and clearly. But to expand on that would take us to the following articles of the Belgian Confession. I'll save that for next time. 
Let it be clear. Faith in God comes by means of his self-revelation. There's general revelation, creation as a book in which the creatures, the worlds, are the words and the letters, and the generations are the sentences, and the eras of history are the chapters. A wonderful book. But who can read it? Well, we can. We who believe. We who confess to know God. We who know Him because He has made sure that we personally encountered Him. The Holy Spirit brings us the Word of God through the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts that positive response to the preaching. The bucket has been taken off our heads by the Spirit. And then we may look around and and blink our eyes in amazement at the wonderful things that surround us. We may be surprised and hurt at the fact that other people can be so blind as to not see the evidence of God in all that surrounds us. And then we can also feel that urge, that urge to bring such people too to that personal encounter with God, to bring them the gospel. Faith comes by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, without the preaching, without the Bible, there can be no faith. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's so important to know your Bible inside out. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.